I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 76 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. We are entering the final act of Matthew's Gospel of Jesus, what is often called the Passion, an ironic and subversive story about suffering and victory that begins with the utter failure of all but one character in the story. It's a new year, apparently. That was weird, huh? That was one weird year, right? Uh, (laughs) The plan for the beginning of 2021 is to enter into the final act of the Gospel of Matthew. And that will dovetail into our next practice, which will be all about learning the true meaning of the word gospel and what it means to live according to the gospel and to share it. I don't have to tell you that 2020 was a strange and trying time, really, for the whole world, our church included. And we moved, I think, appropriately out of our ordinary rhythms to spend time confronting the wrench that had been thrown into a once well-oiled machine, or at least a once-functioning machine. We're still learning what it means to adapt to this season of chaos and unpredictability, to find our footing as family, as men and women, as kids as friends and spouses and families and parents and professionals, and most importantly for us in our conversation, as disciples of Jesus. So with that said, we are inviting you to join us in recapturing a rule of life for the weeks and months ahead. If you weren't here, a rule of life is something that we were learning and putting into practice right when everything went really crazy. And we had to spend some time talking about other stuff that came up over the last few months. So if you, like everyone else, could use some help getting your life and your discipleship in order, not just to survive and move through each day one at a time, but to enjoy life to the fullest and to thrive as a disciple of Jesus, we will be adding practices and resources and kind of recapturing and recapping the practice in the series, A Rule of Life. That will be at vancity.church slash 2021 rule of life in the days and weeks ahead. Now, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. When I hear the word passion, I think of uh, intense desire or intense enthusiasm. People say, oh, so-and-so has a passion for, you fill in the blank, a passion for justice, or they have passionate belief in this or that thing, or you think of passion between uh, husband and wife. But our English word passion comes from a Latin verb, apparently, contrary to popular belief. I don't actually speak Latin personally. That was a joke. Who thinks I speak Latin? Nobody thinks I speak. The Latin verb from which we get our word passion actually means to suffer, or to bear, or to endure, as in the suffering of Jesus. On February 12th, 2017, remember 2017? We opened the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, together. And for four years, we have been navigating the hills and valleys of what we would argue is both a a masterwork of both literary and biographical proportions. Contrary to popular belief, I'm not a Bible scholar, personally. That's another joke. I'm not one of those either. I'm not a Bible scholar, but I have access to their writing and thinking and lectures and sermons across centuries of church history. 
And we've been mining their expertise these years in Matthew in order to avoid what I think is the classic pitfall of the modern Bible reader. And that pitfall is to kind of approach a document that was written 2,000 years ago, or in some cases much longer ago, in a different culture, different language, different world, and simply assume that we will totally get it by just reading it with modern eyes and modern understanding, modern imagination. And sometimes that works. Sometimes Matthew is pretty straightforward, for example, the book that we've been in for years now, but a lot of it isn't. That's why it's taken so dang long to study the thing. And after these years of study, tonight the story of Matthew enters its final act. Tonight we begin the passion story. So the first thing that you have to do is to forget about Mel Gibson for the next half hour, which, if you're anything like me, is dang near impossible on any, at any given moment in time. I can't possibly forget. Mel Gibson didn't coin or trademark the passion. He just used it as an appropriate title for his 2004 blockbuster, which, if you didn't know this, remains to this day the highest grossing R-rated film of all time, at least in America. And since I know everyone is wondering, the number two spot belongs to Deadpool with Clint Eastwood's really not so great uh, American sniper trailing behind at third for some reason. Hollywood Jesus didn't fare so well at the global box office. The Passion of the Christ is all the way down at number eight in the worldwide box office. He's behind Rabble, like uh, The Matrix Reloaded, and It Chapter Two is higher than The Passion. P.U. Now, I'll happily admit, I like Mel Gibson's Jesus movie. What's not to like? Have you seen it? It has Jesus in it. It's a movie about Jesus. I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, now, Mel Gibson, of course, has not done great with the whole reputation thing. And no, The Passion of the Christ is not a perfect translation at every level. It's a movie. Modern Christians have a bad reputation with art in general, but especially art that depicts stories from the Bible. They get really uptight and sensitive and forget what art is in the first place. Remember that whole debacle over Darren Aronofsky's film, Noah? Have you seen Noah? It rules. Uh, but in Genesis, the whole flood story is like two and a half short chapters long. And this movie is almost two and a half hours long. So, you know, they added rock monsters <laughs> into the movie. And yes, I say this as someone who is hostile to spoilers of any kind. But I feel it's important that you know what you're missing if you haven't seen the film Noah. It's not, if that's not enough to make you see Noah... I really don't know what is. It's, it's really cool. And I'm saying this as someone who sincerely loves the Bible. The movie works better with rock monsters than if they'd been shackled to the very scant and almost detail-less source material. We're going somewhere with this, by the way. But Noah's glaring artistic liberties gave it a bad rap. While the passions, closer to the book approach, attracted evangelicals in droves if you were around at that time. It was a big deal. People were taking their tiny kids to this R-rated movie. And it was driving up box office totals and making the ancient term for the suffering of Jesus known for many people for the first time, if not understood, the world over. But Mel borrowed his title from an ancient tradition of understanding the climax of the gospel story. And the term evokes a powerfully tragic image Profound in its simplicity, the passion or the suffering of Jesus. 
And the suffering of Jesus, according to Matthew's biography of the man, begins with what scholar Frederick Dale Bruner calls the doctrine of our total undependability. Matthew is about to drag the miserable reader through a series of trials and failures. And you read trial in the context of the passion narrative and your mind goes to Jesus before the Sanhedrin or Jesus before Pontius Pilate. But Bruner argues that the true trials are the ones that befall the disciples or the Jewish leadership or Peter, Judas, Pilate, the Jewish people, the Roman soldiers, and ultimately humanity itself. And at the end of all of this, he arrives at what he calls the doctrine of our total undependability. And the idea is that Matthew, as a, a, a literary genius, will zoom in for the close-up and then pull back for a wide shot to capture human failure in detail. So the close-up, Peter denies knowing Jesus. And then the wide shot, all the disciples fall away. And then the close-up, Pontius Pilate authorizes the execution of Jesus. And then the wide shot, the Roman army mocks and tortures him. Eventually, Matthew pulls the camera back far enough to document a passive humanity as Jesus suffers lonely and abandoned and dying. And all of these scenes are part of the brutal and climactic final act that together form Matthew's passion narrative. So, let's read from Matthew 26 beginning with verse 47. Are you guys okay? Great, thank you. Matthew 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, a kiss on the face was a traditional greeting in the ancient world, not at all unlike our handshake, but my NIV translation might be a bit too ordinary. Matthew actually intensifies the Greek verb for kiss to indicate that it was performed with sincerity. More literally, it is, he kissed him warmly. So Judas may have also embraced Jesus, or maybe he just kind of behaved with his body language in a way that expressed familiarity and closeness. It's sort of like the difference between a rigid, formal, professional handshake and a warm, enthusiastic greeting between close friends. And this is one of two literary daggers that Matthew twists to emphasize the bitterness of this particular betrayal. Because Judas could have done something else to show these guys who Jesus was. Pointing was a thing in the first century. If Judas only needed to draw attention to Jesus, that would have worked just fine. So was describing people. It's this guy with this outfit on. Judas could have done either of those things. But instead, he betrays Jesus with a flowery, flowery and ultimately sinister display of brotherhood and affection. That's the first dagger. The second dagger is in the way that Judas greets Jesus verbally. Look down at verse 49. What does Judas call Jesus? Anyone? There we go, rabbi, hello, did someone say rabbi? I heard it out there somewhere. Sorry guys, there's like a chasm between you and me. You're just shadows out there, I can barely hear you. For all I know, everyone's yelling out the answers and I'm just standing up here like a dork. But I heard someone say rabbi. Yes, the answer is rabbi. Matthew, in his gospel, separates Jesus' faithful followers from other characters in the way that they address him. It's kind of one of his literary tricks. So in Matthew, the outsiders call Jesus rabbi or teacher, and Jesus own disciples, the insiders, they always call him Lord. So in one story, Judas has transitioned from an insider, one of the 12, 
to an outsider. Jesus is no longer Lord, he's just teacher. Then in verse 50, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Now notice Jesus calls his betrayer, in this particular case, literally his enemy, Jesus calls him friend. Jesus, in the agony of what awaits him, if you remember the story before with the praying in the garden, Jesus recognizes the deep betrayal of the artificial kiss. He knows what's going on and the cut of the greeting rabbi. This is a close friend. He spent years with him. This has been his apprentice. He's poured into him day after day after day. And now he doesn't even call him Lord. He calls him teacher. And Jesus calls Judas friend. When many other words or titles would have sufficed. A lot of scholars that I read this week wrestled with the remarkability of that simple word. And one of them, I think, put it beautifully when he wrote that the explanation was actually really simple. Why does Jesus in this moment call Judas friend? And he wrote, because, quote, Jesus loves Judas. Jesus does what he teaches. Verse 50 goes on to say, Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Now, my Bible begins 51 by saying, With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. But in Greek, the two words are, literally, and look, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. So, why would the author and narrator suddenly blurt out in the midst of a story and process, and look, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword? The answer is actually back in verse 47, though again, the NIV sort of slips in the translation. In, 20, in verse 47, we read, while he was still talking, look, Judas arrived. Then just a few verses later, and look, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. Matthew intends to draw a parallel between Judas and the sword-drawing disciple. John's gospel tells us that it's Peter, spoiler alert. And both of them are disobeying Jesus and failing him in the story. Scholar Robert H. Gundry in his seminal commentary on Matthew writes of this parallel, violent response to persecution is no better than betraying others to persecution. Modern American readers of the gospel by and large get that Judas is wrong in the story. But Christians down throughout history and certainly in America have learned very little from Peter's failure as we Generation after generation, march into war, pilot drones, or arm our homes, or vocalize our support for these things in the name of righteousness. And yet, verse 51 goes on, Jesus' companion drew his sword out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Scholar Dale Bruner notes the interesting foreshadow and possibly a double meaning of the severed ear, writing this, isn't it true that the crusade succeeded in the Muslim world only in cutting off ears from hearing the gospel for hundreds of years? Did the European Inquisition have any long-term effect in Europe history than the removing of many ears from ever listening to the church again? Will the many patriotic liberation theologies of the militant times leave a better legacy in our time? Will the American civil religion with its perverse allegiance of God and country and its frequent military national trust be looked back upon as a great idolatry. In the context of Matthew's gospel, removed from our centuries of patriotic idolatry and gun worship and military violence, 
in the context of this story, it's easier to spot the parallel between Peter and Judas. If you just look at the story from cover to cover, Jesus taught his disciples faithfulness and integrity and honesty, and Judas deceitfully betrays Jesus for money. That one's obvious. He sins. He fails. Jesus also taught his disciples to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek, not to resist an evil person. And then Peter, threatened by his enemies, draws a sword and starts swinging it at his enemy's head. And even though he does this, at least ostensibly, to protect Jesus and to protect his friends, he disobeys Jesus, he sins, he fails. So in verse 52 we read, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Matthew is bringing the Sermon on the Mount all the way back in chapters 5, 6, and 7 to bear on the passion story and the final act of this biography. This teaching of Jesus is so radical that Swiss theologian Ulrich Luz wrote in his commentary on the passage that it indicates a radical, uncompromising pacifism that doesn't even leave room for self-defense. And this understanding of the text all the way back or extends all the way back to the earliest church fathers. Tertullian, for example, wrote around the second century, in disarming Peter, Christ disarms all Christians. Only without the sword can the Christian wage war. The Lord has abolished the sword. Early church theologian Irenaeus wrote, Christians have changed their swords and their lances into instruments of peace, and they know not how to fight. Or Athanasius, one of the most important theologians to shape Christian theology in early church history, argued that Christians, instead of arming themselves with swords, extend their hands in prayer. And this is not some kind of radical new teaching that suddenly appears out of nowhere in the final acts of the gospel. Jesus is simply reteaching what he has already been teaching his disciples all along. Reject violence, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, put down the sword. And in this particular instance, there are even more dynamic reasons at play for Peter to put down a sword. Look down at verse 53. Jesus says to him, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So Jesus' rebuke of Peter, remember he says, all who live by the sword die by the sword, or all who draw the sword will die by the sword. He doesn't just say, if you do it this one time. That goes well beyond the narrow scope of the moment. It echoes the clear teaching of the Sermon on the Mount for all disciples at all times throughout the uh, history of the church, and on into the present day and beyond. In his commentary on the passage, scholar R.T. France points out, while it is his particular situation which makes the use of force inappropriate here, Jesus' words about those who take up the sword are quite general and provide sufficient support for the belief that physical violence, and particularly retaliatory violence, is incompatible with following Jesus. But there's more to it than that. Here, Peter's sword fury is doubly misplaced. To begin with, Jesus has said many times at this point that he intends to be handed over to the religious leaders and to the state and that he will die. He's going to be executed. He knows it. And he told Peter this several times. This, Jesus says, will be the fulfillment of God's redemption plan. And on top of all that, this is the guy who walked on water and created food out of nothing and resuscitated dead people so far, and the story drove out demons with a word. Does Jesus 
really need some dingbat swinging a sword around? Apparently he's really bad at it. He's swinging at someone's head and got his ear. I don't know how that happened. It seems like you couldn't do that if you were trying. Is that the best that Jesus has? Is just Peter throwing a sword all around? So this piece of the nonviolence puzzle, I think, escapes the mind of many a modern American Christian. I've been talking about nonviolence for many years, and it typically conjures what I like to call the mother of all hypotheticals, which is, I'm sure you can guess, so if someone broke into your home and was going to kill your family, you would just stand there and do nothing. The question itself betrays such a depressingly empty belief in the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, as if in this one in a million scenario, the only options available to a disciple of Jesus are either kill or be killed. Violence or complete passivity. Does the church not believe in prayer or miracles? Does the church not believe in sacrifice, the power of the Holy Spirit, or costly discipleship, or God subverting the devil's evil to do good? And Bible scholars argue that Jesus refers to 12 legions of angels that are at his, dispo- at his disposal. And he does that as a deliberate use of Roman military language to rebuke Peter for drawing his sword. Meaning, Jesus is saying, listen, if there is to be any fighting, any soldiers, any battle, it will be spiritual, not physical. So Jesus' rebuke of Peter is a strong one and on many levels. What are, what are you doing to him? I mean, he says to Peter, what are you doing? On every level, Peter, what in the world are you doing? And then Jesus addresses his arresters. Look at verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. So Jesus does not resist. He doesn't defend himself, but he doesn't applaud his arresters either. He scolds them for the obvious deviousness of their work, knowing he's done no wrong and they are pursuing him like a violent criminal. The kind of work Jesus has been doing, he points out, has been conducted by day in plain sight in public. Why then do they come for him under the cover of night, if not to hide the crooked deed itself? One scholar I read this week noted that nowhere else in the passion story in Matthew's gospel will Jesus protest the injustice that he suffers. Because of this, the scholar in question suspected that Jesus is rebuking his arresters for being armed with clubs and swords, having just rebuked his own disciple for the same reason. Whether it's the weapons or the sinister nature of the arrest or both things, Jesus has nothing good to say to or about anything taking place. Except in this, in verse 56, he says, all this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. In Matthew's gospel, these will be Jesus' final words to his disciples before he dies. In the midst of this awful moment, in the midst of betrayal and rebuke and sin, God is still carrying out his plan to rescue this awful humanity. And how will they respond to Jesus' final words to them, his assurance of God's plan? The rest of verse 56 tells us, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled, just like Jesus said they would. Everyone in the story fails Jesus. You might categorize these particular failures in one of three ways. There's the betrayal, there's zealousness, corrupted zealousness rather, and abandonment. 
Betrayal, I think we understand. No one wants to think of it this way, but sin, in essence, is betrayal, at least for the disciple of Jesus anyway. Here's a complicated idea I think Christians my age and younger struggle to comprehend. Sin, that is, doing anything that goes against God's good design for the justice and well-being of human beings and all of creation, sin is sin for everyone. God made everybody and he had and has the same good intentions for everybody. So when anyone lives contrary to the kingdom of God, this misses the mark, which is literally what the word sin means in the first place. But for those who do not follow Jesus, there's no relational standard by which to deal with that sin. Which is why later in the New Testament, Paul tells first century Christians, look, don't worry about what the people outside of the church are doing in their sin. It's not your business to judge all that. Worry about what's going on inside the church. That is your business. Inside the church, there's a relational covenant by which to judge and deal with sin. People have signed up to follow Jesus. There's a standard. There's a way of life. And we hold each other accountable to that standard. And see... My generation, I think, grew up around an older generation that often seemed as if it was worried more about sin outside the church than anything else in the known universe at times. That whole, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church bit, it wasn't in their translation or something. Someone at Kinko's had their thumb over it when they made copies. Remember Kinko's? Is that still a thing? I don't, under, I don't know why it would be. Is it? Does anyone know? part of FedEx now. So the copy place merged with the mail place? Is Tab, is that you up in the balcony? Yeah. Are you nodding to that? Yeah. He was nodding like, yes, I know exactly. <laughs> From the beginning of the thing, yep, FedEx and Kinko's. Have you been there recently or are you just aware of that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so the, the <laughs> I grew up around an older a generation that often seemed as if it was desperately concerned with sin going on outside the church. So what did my generation do? We reacted. We became the coexist bumper sticker children. We took that whole, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And we ran with it and became the squirming Instagram offspring of hashtag you do you. And the idea became everyone is right which is a hilariously untenable way to live. No one actually believes this because it's intellectually impossible. One year for Christmas, here's an example. One year for Christmas, my wife gifted me a mug that said, best dad ever, uh, which is nice, right? Right? That's a nice gift, yeah. But then later on in the day, we were exchanging gifts with her family, and she got her dad the exact same mug. And I watched as he opened this thing, and I objected. I said, these mugs can't both be true. Who deserves this mug? <laughs> and therein lies the rub, doesn't it? God's good way of life and human flourishing doesn't apply only to humans who sign up for it. It applies to everyone. But without a relationship there's no system of accountability to deal with sin. So contrary to popular belief, I'm not an archer. This is my running gag for the evening. Is anyone picking up on it yet? I didn't think that anyone would be like rolling in the floors or anything, but I thought maybe a, a chuckle would be appropriate. I'll settle for what I got. Uh, contrary to popular belief, I'm not an archer. Um, never fired a real bow and arrow in my life. If I ran onto the field of an archery competition, I'm assuming this is a thing that happens, and I zing an arrow in the air, 
and miss the target by a mile, then I miss the target. A miss is a miss. But what would be the point of all the actual competitors turning around to yell at me about my official score and the rule book? I'm not even part of the game. Start with that. Like, you're not even supposed to be here. You don't know what you're doing. I don't even know the rules. The difference between my imaginary archery competition and the church of Jesus is that all people, the Bible argues, Christian or otherwise, all people will be held accountable by God in judgment. But right now, it makes no sense to scream at people about sin when they don't yet belong to the kingdom. First things first. All that to say, sin for everyone misses the mark. But sin for the disciple of Jesus is a unique kind of betrayal because we have a master, a teacher, a friend, and he told us point blank, if you love me, you will keep my commands. When we don't, we are unfaithful. We betray our master, our teacher, and our friend. The classic Old Testament metaphor is, an, is of an adulterous spouse. That's a painful way of putting it because we all know ourselves to be guilty of this. So it should be a painful way of putting it. The second failure in this story for many is not as obvious as the betrayal dimension because zealousness can be a good thing. But Bruner warns that every denomination has its vitriolic adherents which zealously defend Jesus. Beware, they often hurt Jesus badly. Corrupted zeal becomes sin. It's true that some of us, according to our particular brokenness, are passive by nature, prone to laziness and cowardice. It's not really our thing to speak up or violently with our words anyway, defend Jesus or our version of the gospel. But many of us, I think, are enthusiastic and we're even willing to be enthusiastic about Jesus and the kingdom as long as it suits our particular preferences. You know, the frustrating thing is that kind of zeal doesn't usually... Um, correspond with Jesus. The kind of zeal Jesus asks of his disciples is so unlike the variety that comes natural for most of us, myself included. We want zeal that makes the people we don't like feel very stupid. We want zeal that fits on a bumper sticker or maybe on a protest sign or in a tweet or on an Instagram story so that everyone will know our political leanings and so that we can antagonize the people we disagree with or dislike. When Jesus suits those needs, then we can be zealous. It's nice to use him in the mix sometimes. If he doesn't suit them, then we will make him. 2020, with all of its political discord and civil unrest and racial acrimony, it became a year in which Jesus was volleyed around like a punchline to win social media fights more so than any year in recent memory, at least for me. People love to show up for causes if they can let the internet know about it. And I winced when I saw often well-meaning people in the name of causes with which I didn't even disagree plaster out-of-context Bible verses or misquotes on protest signs and social media rants, not in the name of the kingdom of God, but in the name of saving Jesus from their enemies or in the name of being right, waving a sword around in the dark, bloodied ears falling from wounded heads. Of tonight's passage, N.T. Wright noted, when someone swung a sword around among the olive trees in dark Gethsemane, thinking it was his God-given duty to defend Jesus, Jesus told him not to bother. In fact, he told him he was heading for disaster. 
All those great zinger tweets and protest signs that went viral, they make us feel vindicated for a moment, and they bring absolutely no one into the kingdom. Instead, they scatter discord and rivalry and animosity and loneliness, and they shut up the hearts of angry, hurting, broken people like so many ears cut from so many heads. And you can scour the New Testament looking for the perfect pool quote for your passive-aggressive Instagram story, but in the process, I think you'll discover a disappointing truth. The kind of zeal Jesus asks of his followers looks like this, a quiet life that consistently demonstrates righteousness and justice with actions above words, loving and blessing your enemies, gentleness that is evident to all, and as much as it depends on you, living at peace with everyone. And yet somehow, one generation got it in their heads that political radicalism, which is policing the morality of a world outside the kingdom, vocally condemning the evil of everyone else as a virtue signal, highlighting your own rightness and wisdom as the kind of zeal Jesus needs oh so badly from us. And then the subsequent generation simply moved to the other side of the aisle and did the exact same thing. Now, I'm not saying that there is never a time nor place to be vocal about evil and injustice. There is. But even righteous anger against injustice must be motivated by zeal for the peaceable kingdom of God that blesses enemies, loves enemies, whose gentleness is evident to all. But we fail in this. We betray Jesus. We selfishly corrupt zeal. And we, like the cowardly disciples in Gethsemane, all fall away. This week I was praying and I was suddenly convicted by the way that I, th I think I romanticize my own sinful brokenness sometimes. I think that sometimes I, I make a, a sympathetic character of myself when I deal with my own sin in prayer. I talk candidly with God about my own failure and I found myself... And it's kind of hard to explain, but I think that I start to like the way it sounds because my Christianized brain is tangled up in biblical catchphrases about sinners saved by grace. And when I think about God's graciousness and his kindness to me, I can't help but be moved by such a thing. And I forget about my own sin at all. I thought about my wife, Abby. I thought, what if I had done something to really hurt my wife and, and she forgave me? Totally hypothetical. You'll have to use your imagination. And... Imagine that I, enraptured by this gesture of grace, I just praise my wife for being oh so charitable in her forgiveness, and I immediately blew right past the thing that necessitated that forgiveness in the first place. If I've hurt someone, if I've sinned against someone, or if someone has hurt or sinned against me, on my best day, I would want them, I, well, rather, I would not want them eternally miserable over their mistake, but I would hope that there was a meaningful sense of remorse, either in myself or in them. The fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God has been a bittersweet and a unifying doctrine for disciples of Jesus for 2,000 years, and the numbing ubiquitousness of the thing makes us forgetful that we've betrayed Jesus, and that this betrayal of Jesus is part of the passion story, part of Jesus' agony. We have used and exploited Jesus selfishly for our own zeal rather than for the kingdom that all of us have fallen away. As we begin another year in this strange season of our church, 
I think we need to learn what it means to recapture an authentic and peaceful zeal for the kingdom of God. To recapture a genuine enthusiasm for the way of Jesus. The kind of passion that comes not from trying to psych yourself up and certainly not from social media hype or outrage, but by calmly and peacefully reordering our lives in the midst of chaos so that we can reorder our loves. We've had a weird time. It's not over, obviously. There was never any rush on our part to strong our way back into a a normalcy that didn't exist. Someone is taking your temperature at the church doors. Have you ever thought about, I'm sure some of you have said this out loud, uh, what if you could have seen a video of Sunday evenings back in like February of 2020, these Sunday evenings? I imagine it playing with like the score from The Shining over it as everyone's lining up and mask and getting a little gun-shaped thermometer that I didn't even know. It's a boop at your head every time you come in. People are like, oh no, it happened. Things aren't normal, obviously. Maybe they will be more normal sometime soon. I don't know. But whether things regain familiarity or they spiral into more chaos or they kind of oscillate back and forth, I don't want my discipleship and consequently my life in suspended animation waiting for the return of a lost sense of normal, whatever that is. I want intimacy with the creator God who knows and loves me and has a purpose and meaning for my life, even in all this. And I want to know that purpose now, today, in the midst of all this. And I want to pursue it now in the midst of all this. I want to become a more wise and present father, a more loving and sacrificial husband, a more generous friend, a more integrated and healthy and whole teacher and pastor and person, whatever that is for you. I want to confront my own betrayal and abandonment of Jesus to lay down my own version of zealousness for the kingdom and to learn his, even if it's difficult for me to do so. And pulling off any of this only makes sense if the way of Jesus is better than what I have in mind for my life. If he actually knows and loves us and has our best in mind and his version of best is trustworthy. And those of us who follow Jesus have come to believe that it is. Tonight, we're beginning our year with the passion of Jesus. And we're moving into a season when we can learn and relearn his way of life for us. Now, in light of his great sacrificial love for us. At first, I thought, what a weird way to begin the year by beginning the passion narrative. But I think it's terribly appropriate. I don't want to march angry into the never-ending political discord, ready to defend my own version of Jesus. I want to walk in the ways of peace as I put the practices of the authentic king of the universe into practice. And this is a journey that I would like to take with family. So let me pray and ask God's spirit to fill us and lead us as we begin this journey together. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.